in my world of programming, my job is to plan where the game should air and on what network. And if you're on TV a lot more than other teams, then that helps your recruiting because the recruits can see your team and your style and your wins and losses and how you handle it on television. So fast forward, they didn't mean to offend me in any way, but often I was asked, why don't you take the keys to my Minnesota home? It's on the water from an XYZ coach. Take your kids out there and and have two weeks on me. And I would always decline. I never wanted to owe anyone anything and jeopardize the fairness that I have with my role at ESPN. We have a policy on gift taking and I always upheld that rule and, and never deviated. So whenever asked to do anything unethical or look the other way, I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, you done good. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today's guest is Carol Stiff. Carol is a nationally recognized television sports executive that currently serves as the Vice President of Women's Sports Programming and Acquisitions at ESPN. Carol is widely considered to be one of the most influential people in women's college sports and is a 2020 Women's Basketball Hall of Fame inductee. In this episode, Carol details how her ability to pivot and innovate enabled her to advance in her career. She also discusses how she leads, builds teams, makes decisions, and evaluates risk. For anybody in a leadership position, get out your pen and paper because you'll want to take notes. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Carol, it's a pleasure to have you on this morning. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be here. So you started your career as a field hockey coach and a women's basketball coach, which I think is fantastic. And you ended up at Brown University. How in the world did you pivot from being a coach to working at ESPN and programming? Well, that's a great question. I was coaching for about five years. You have your your data correct. And my final year at Brown, I just decided that I didn't want 17 and 18-year-olds deciding my future. They're either coming to Brown or going to Cornell. And if they came to Brown, we would be in the NCAA tournament. So I decided to make a pivot and leave coaching, which I thought I was going to do from a very young age when I started playing basketball, I think at CYO. And I got this position at ESPN to work on the 10th anniversary party. And who doesn't want to work on a party, right? No question. So I was working with the communications department planning this, this massive party. And I just fell in love with ESPN. And what I mean by that is the fact that every day was different. All I knew, by the way, Eric, was how to turn a TV on and off. I had no, uh, no other education in this field. But I followed a woman who was my mentor at, she was at Brown University before I got there. She actually left to join a small little cable company in Bristol, Connecticut called ESPN. 
Mm. And she was head of communications and PR for this, this startup. And by the time, you know, I came along, they were, like I said, 10 years in. And mm. so I went and worked in her area. And like I said, so enjoyed it and, and made my first move into the programming department where I reside now. And basically the programming department is a department that acquires all the rights. They're not like an IT programming and coding department. Mm. They acquire the rights and then they implement the rights. So as you might have seen yesterday, we just announced we have an NHL deal. Yes. So our department, hooray, our department negotiated those rights with the NHL. And now we have to implement it. And it's not even a year away. It's it's coming up really, really soon this fall. So congratulations, by the way. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's a great team. They worked hard and uh, we're very proud of, of what we do have in our portfolio. That's for sure. So you go into a world where you really don't have the requisite skill set, so to speak, like you didn't go to college in communications or anything like that. You didn't do internships in this. Do you think that your experience as a coach and having to solve complex problems, did that lend itself to help you like run into the coming of the room and be like, okay, I got to figure this thing out? Like, how did you develop that skill set? That's another great question. Well, first of all, I was the youngest of six. So I knew that everything had a reason and a methodology and my parents made the final decision and we could weigh in and we could say what we thought either before or after they made the decision. And so that that led me into my coaching career. And I led the teams with an idea of democracy, that they mm. they have some say. And at the end of the day, I'll make the final decision. So I always use that as sort of my benchmark when I surround myself with people at ESPN. I make sure that I listen to them. And they can be all different demographics, young, old, whatever you, you want to say here race, gender. And I, I just surrounded myself with great people, intelligent people, listened to what they had to share or add, and then made decisions. So I've always used that. Even with my own children now today, I listen to what they have to say, but ultimately make that final decision. That's really interesting because I think a lot of times when we get into leadership positions, I know, especially as you, I mean, you, in your career, you, you worked yourself up the ladder. I mean, nothing was handed to you. I mean, I just look, you just go to your LinkedIn profile and you're like, wow. I mean, it was step by step by step along the way. And then when you get into a senior leadership position, like you're in that you're listening to other folks, I find that very encouraging because some people want to get in those roles and it's like my way, the highway. And I've been around coaches like that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it's really refreshing when you actually can have a voice in the room. You just got no one to talk. So yeah, as you climb the ladder, like what did you contribute your success to? Is your ability to keep moving up in the organization? Always being able to pivot. You know, in, in basketball, we say don't move your pivot foot. I constantly move my pivot foot. I constantly was recreating myself, constantly asking questions. Heck, I had TikTok in my house before my kids did. And really? Snapchat and oh yeah, oh yeah. I always try to stay like ESPN, innovative and unique and creative, and always ask a lot of questions along the way. And you know, I've launched a lot of other areas of my career, not just acquisitions at ESPN, and serve on a lot of committees, and just always making and willing and ready to pivot. Hmm. A lot of people are scared to pivot. What gives you the confidence to do that? You have to. If you stay stagnant, there's no future, in my opinion. 
what did Bob Iger say? Maybe Kimberly, you can help me with the the quote here. Eric, maybe you know, innovate or die. Hmm. I don't know if that's truly the, but that's how I read it. Innovate yeah. it or or die. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say this because in coaching, my experience, and you can tell me what yours is, is that it's kind of this like you come from a tree, a lineage. And a lot of times it's, well, so-and-so did this and it was successful. And so here's the playbook and this is how we're going to do things as an organ, like down to the organizational level. Like, you know, Nick Saban's a great example. I've worked a lot of coaches that worked with him and they literally have a, a manual of every position with the organization. And then when they go into interview for a job, they change Alabama to whatever. And then they'll tweak a couple of things, but they're like, here, this is what we do. That is a sports mentality. You know, I had success here. We're going to do it the same way here. You kind of break that mold. You have to adjust to the chemistry of your team also and new trends. I'll never forget the story. If, if you were to ask me who my idol was in coaching was Pat Summit. Yeah. And I watched every move that she made. I would go to the final four and go to her practice sessions to learn and take notes. And, oh, I love that drill that she used. And when she was way along in her career, she had this fabulous basketball player named Shamika Holesclaw. Shamika was a freshman from New York City, most talented freshman I had seen at such an early age. And they lost 10 games, unheard of for Pat Summit. Mm. And the chemistry was lacking between, between Pat and, and Shamika, and this is in her books. And she finally took the team in the locker room and talked to them or maybe yell at them, I don't know, but then released everyone from the locker room except Shamiqua. And she spoke one-on-one with Shamiqua. And that's when she made a pivot to just change some of her style of mm. coaching. And they went on and won the national championship that year. Wow. You've known Pat Summit for a very long time. You knew her a very, very long time. What, what made her so special? She commanded the room. She commanded the attention. She too always was learning the game. She, she would meet with NBA coaches and Phil Knight or whoever. She would just meet with others in her, in her skill and her craft. And she always asked questions, but she was, in my opinion, very ethical, Mm. straightforward, didn't beat around the bush and was a mother figure too, to many of those players. Mm. So you talk about pivoting. Pivoting comes with risk. I mean, it's just part of anything. How, how do you evaluate risk? That's a great question, Eric. I guess I would have to say that you have to sort of put yourself in the position and see where that risk will take you. Mm-hmm. And if it's overly risky, um, I remember being asked to serve on a board one time. And early, early on in my career, it was my first board. It was in Bristol, Connecticut. And a gentleman bowed out from being on the board. And I'm like, what's wrong with that guy? Like, why not? It was was a great charity. It was a nonprofit. And when they said that they could garner his wages if we are found um, to do something unlawful, a decision made, or maybe give a a third party a, a contract, that they would come after his his wages and he had his own company. And so he, mm-hmm. he said it was too much of a risk. And I remember that. So if it offends or attacks what is most 
important to me, i.e. my family, or my wages that support my family, I probably will dial it back a little bit. Um, so I guess the easiest answer is to you know weigh the pros and cons. I know that sounds cliche, no, but uh, it, it does help to put it down on paper and see it in black and white. So you kind of hinted to something there, like, does the risk impact what you value? Do you have core values yourself? Absolutely. Great question, Eric. Yes, I, I should have put that in as, as part of my answer. Yeah, if, if I'm asked to do anything unethical, I'll give you a great example. In my world of programming, my job is to plan where the game should air and on what network. Okay. And if you're on TV a lot more than other teams, then that helps your recruiting because the recruits mm. can see uh, your team and your style and uh, your wins and losses and how you handle it on television. So fast forward, they didn't mean to uh, offend me in any way, but often I was asked, why don't you take the keys to my Minnesota home? It's on the water from an XYZ coach. Take your kids out there and, and have two weeks on me. Or I'll give you another one. Pat Summit had a beautiful swimming pool with a pool house next to her home. And she would say, Stiff, you know, why are you staying downtown at a hotel? You can stay here at the pool house in one of the bunk beds. And I would always decline. Nope. I never wanted to owe anyone anything and jeopardize the fairness that I have with my, my role at ESPN. So I we have a policy on gift taking and I always upheld that rule and 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 never deviated. So whenever asked to do anything unethical or look the other way, I want to be able to look myself sort of like the Zoom call. I want to be able to look in the mirror and say, you done good. Mm. A friend of mine says moral, ethical, legal. And that's kind of how he makes decisions. It's, it's a military thing, but um, it sounds very, very similar. I never really thought about the you know, in programming. Yes, I've been in college sports. And when you start getting those primetime slots, it's huge for recruiting. And, you know, some of your own success perpetuates, I would imagine, like your ability to be in certain positions because, you know, you get more viewers. I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I could only imagine that that's kind of involved in it. But um, I didn't realize that there'd be the pressure from the coaches. That's very interesting. Yeah. Wow. They didn't mean to put pressure on me. They were really being very kind because you do build relationships along the way. But I, I always had a firm line. Nope. No, thank you. Appreciate it and move on. Yeah, it's genuine intent. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, I can have downstream consequences. So when you put together a team and you, you know, you're in a vice president role at ESPN. I mean, that is a big deal. When you're putting together a team, how are you evaluating who comes onto your team? And I would love to know, like, do you have any tips for hiring? Because, I mean, it seems like you've been doing it for a while. Sure. My number one tip is resourcefulness. Okay. So an example, need to contact Eric. How do I contact Eric? That's the task at hand. And without them coming back to me and asking, do you have his number on your you know, Rolodex or your contacts, I should say, to be up to speed on technology? So resourcefulness, coming up with answers to the problems instead of you know, bringing me all the problems. Uh, the ability to work with others, ask a lot of key questions, interview those that these people have worked with, you know, just the ability to, to pivot 
to be able to say, yes, I'll do that. Uh, the ability to see a meeting with Jimmy Pataro next week, the president of, of ESPN. And what would I need to prepare for that meeting with Jimmy? You know, I could tell someone I'm meeting, we're going to talk about the WNBA. And without me having to ask, there I would have the, the documentation that I would need. So resourcefulness is number one in my mind. Working with others, track record. And I'd say those three things. When somebody comes onto your team, is it your call? I mean, it is your call. You talk about democratization within the organization, but do you really like lean on how other people feel about that individual? Is it kind of like, hey, everybody's got to be on board with this or, you know what I'm saying? Because I mean, I'm sure you have dynamic groups. Um, There's been opportunities where I've had that luxury of being able to do the back check on my own and Mm -hmm. and, and place some calls. Being with the company 30 plus years now, I I have quite a few contacts within the company and quite a few outside the company. So when you have the opportunity to do so, I do. Often though, I was assigned players from other areas of the company or within our own department. And so with that, either it was the right fit or or not, I would take them and coach them up and get them ready for the next move. That's my ultimate goal as I'm looking at the back nine here, that Who's ever on my team, they got to be ready to take the next step. And what do I have to do to get them ready to take that next step? Sort of like coaching. Do you go through an evaluation with them? Like, are you, do you have a consistent rhythm of, um, hey, I'm going to evaluate your performance? I want to evaluate like where you can improve. Do you have a, a routine around that? Well, at ESPN and Disney Company, we have a very formal appraisal system that we use, and it's, really based on having conversations with those that report to you daily, not, you know, mid six months in or at the end of the year. Oh boy, did I, I just hated that when I was in, in review time and you get zinged with something that you did six months ago. Uh, and it just, it just brings your personality down. It just brings your whole spirit down because uh, I've heard it said, if you're given a negative remark, It takes four positives to get your mind over the one negative remark. So I try not to do that. That's one item that I've learned over the years is is whatever happened to me that I didn't like, change it, Carol, because I'm sure the person behind you didn't like it either. So I'm very much in line with frank conversations and have them in in the spirit of the moment. Don't wait. That's crazy. I love it. There's nothing worse than thinking you're doing a good job and your boss is like, yeah, doing great, doing great, doing great. And all of a sudden, a year later, something comes up and you're like, well, how long has this been going on? Well, since you got here and you're like, could somebody have just coached me up a little bit? And I've personally experienced that. And it's a horrible feeling. And especially if you care about your team, there's nothing worse than letting your team down, you know, in any context, work, whatever. And I'm sure your employees, people that work on your team, appreciate that. We're very competitive and they want they want feedback. They mm. want to improve. And if you don't give the feedback, then what are you telling your, your employee? Tell them you don't care. Right. Yeah. You mentioned something a second ago. You said the word energy. As a team leader, as an executive, you know, how do you maintain a high, I'm, I'm not saying bouncing off the walls energy, but when you come into the room, people have got to feel a sense of optimism. 
you know, maybe you're going up against something tough or it's the beginning of the week or first of the quarter, or we're closing the quarter, whatever it is. How do you maintain your energy? Like, what are you doing to pour into yourself so that you can be high performing? Well, that's a great question. A lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I love coffee. Yeah, I love coffee too. I just understand my role more than ever as you get older into your career that when you do show up, that people are looking at you. And from the moment you walk in a room to the moment you leave, you're on. For instance, for me, traveling all the time to games, once I left that hotel room, I was on. And always understand that you're on and that you're setting the example, not only for your own brand, but for the company's brand. And I really try to walk the floor per se at ESPN and talk to people that aren't even on my team, just to check in with them, see how they're doing and get a pulse for those on the floor. And that's where I get my energy. I get my energy a lot from those that are, you know, at ESPN or those in the coaching world. And I, I propel off a lot of the time off their energy. Mm. That's kind of the kinetics of the, the room. I noticed that on your Zoom photo, you have you playing golf. Do you like golf? Oh, yes. I wish I was. I love golf. Billy okay. Jean King always, always scolded us when we say, I love golf, but I'm not very good. She goes, don't say that. No one <laughs> needs to know you're not very good, except when you get paired up with someone and they want to know your handicap. And I'm like, I don't even know what handicap means. <laughs> I love the game. I love the fact that you're outdoors and you know, you're catching your breath. Many times we've had negotiations on the golf course and I, I do love it and wish I had more time for uh, lessons. Let's leave mm. it at that. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Where's the best place you've ever played? Your favorite round of golf? Pebble Beach. Oh, nice. Well played. Yeah. I was there, it was, oh, right before the pandemic. Oh. Unbelievable. Yeah. The Broadmoor, another great place. Colorado. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, really nice. Favorite pairing? <sighs> Maybe you got a top three. I don't know. Probably um, Jody Conrad. who used to coach at Texas. Legendary. She got out of coaching and she's had a, I know she's had one hole in one. No way. I always like to golf with someone who's fantastic. So truth be known, I'm going to tell you a secret. And I get kind of tired doing 18 holes. I'll look around and I go, Jody, take my shot. Because <laughs> we play best it. ball. I only play best ball on those. Yeah. those no, that's, that's fun. My dad likes to say long, straight, and stress-free. That's kind of his, his motto. And that's kind of interesting that you would love to play with somebody that's really good because some people would get nervous about that. But you just admire their game. Yeah. I also, uh, I was paired one time with someone from the basketball committee, the, the chair of the committee, mm. and I'm from New Jersey, and I didn't realize that she doesn't curse, she doesn't swear, mm-hmm. and um, swack, and the ball, you know, went the wrong way, let's leave it at that, and so one of my curse words just happened to fall out, and the other two women were like, <laughs> and I didn't realize that she didn't curse. And mm-hmm. so she just started laughing and that just broke the ice and we had a, we had a good day. That's, that's a great story. 
So you you really have a, a love for basketball. I mean, where did this this love start as a, as a child? Where was it like fostered? It certainly did. This is a, I'm so glad you asked this. I fell in love with the game from my mother. My mother it was in her love DNA. It. She had all brothers in her family, and her youngest brother was the head basketball coach at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio, the Flyers. Mm-hmm. And I fondly remember her putting her ear up against the radio when the Dayton Flyers were playing UCLA and John Wooden, one of John Wooden's team, and they won. Wow. And I just remember her, you know, elated and and, and running around a really, really tiny, tiny kitchen. But more importantly, my mom took me to, and I, once again, I was the youngest of six. So we shared everything. Both parents worked really hard. And she took me to my very first college basketball game. I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. I was playing CYO basketball. And it was at the Garden. Madison mm. Square Garden had a double header of women's basketball. And Queen State was in there and Delta State and Montclair State from New Jersey. And they had a woman named Carol Blazjowski in the garden, nailed 52 points in one no game. Way. She only had she, I think she had 25 at half and she hit for 52. She owned that record until I think Kobe Bryant broke it. And she will remind you if you ask her about that game, that there was no three point line either. They were all two pointers or free throws. Oh so my goodness. I just fell in love with the game just in that arena. And mm. often when I go back for, you know, WNBA games or the Jimmy V games, I just look around and Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, that was my team. And I just, I go, thanks, mom. I don't know how she found the money for the two tickets to take me to New York. <laughs> that's for another day. <laughs> I think she'd be pretty proud of you. I mean, this year you're going to be inducted into the uh, Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. What does that mean to you? Uh, beyond honored beyond. I never thought I'd ever, ever be inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Never saw it coming. I always just kept my head down and did my job and I was paid well for doing my job. I just, I'm just honored. And the class to go in with, you know, Swin Cash and Lauren Jackson, David Stern, you know, and Tamika Catchings. And Debbie Brock, by the way, Debbie Brock's going in. She played for Delta State. I saw her play in the garden that day. How about that? Yeah. That's going to be a cool conversation when you see her there. It will be awesome. And then the other two were Sue Donahoe, who who just left our world in November. Mm-hmm. And then Carol Callen has been running USA Basketball. So we all have a weave our history together. So it's going to be a, a really fun weekend. That's going to be amazing. That's got to be such an honor. Speaking of women's basketball, let's just talk about women's sports for just a minute. I recently read an article in Deloitte Insights about the value of, you know, the valuation of women's basketball, of women's sports. So they say right now, this is 20, this is 2020. They said that sports revenue for women's sports was under a billion dollars. If you look at the global value of sports, in 2018, it reached 481 billion. That's men's, women's, and mix. Okay. So let's just say, let's call it half a trillion dollars. All right. This article was very favorable about women's sports is ripe for greater monetization. 
but certain things need to fall into place. And I know this is something that you're very passionate about. So let's talk about this. Like what needs to happen for women's sports to, to grow and expand and there be more of a future? Cause my wife was an excellent college softball player. She could have played professional softball, but she was like, I'm not going to go play for $1,500 a month. Like we literally had this conversation just recently because she was really good. Like what needs to happen for this to start turning a corner? I appreciate you asking this question because this is truly what keeps me up at night. And what keeps me up at night is the, the lack of dollars and advertising behind women's sports. It's the greatest secret, in my opinion. I truly do not understand why it's taking so long when these women graduate from college, they stay in school, they're role models, they multitask. They get back to the community, they sign autographs, they do everything right. And why wouldn't XYZ brand want to be married to that brand? Mm-hmm. So I think we're starting to see the tip of the iceberg here. I'm hearing a lot more noise from major companies looking at our portfolio of thousands and thousands of hours of women's sports. So that's number one. Additionally, we need people to step up and support. We need your wife to attend softball games and buy maybe a local softball team package. We need your wife to also coach Mm. um, our young women. That's another issue that we're seeing. It's a byproduct, a a negative byproduct of of Title IX is the equal pay and that men, men are able to make, you know, a livelihood out of coaching women's sports. So we could really use your wife back on the diamond to teach the proper techniques, which is only going to make the sport even better as being taught Mm. correctly. So corporate America support from others that have played the sport. I think Athletes Unlimited, you might want to check out their model for women's pro sports where they, they assemble their league in one city. Okay. And this past year for softball was in Chicago. And they met for five weeks and the players were given four uniforms, red, white, blue, and let's say orange. And they had zero coaches. It was a player run league and they played 30 games in five weeks. And they had uh, ESPN on board and, and, and CBS Sportsnet. And we covered three nights of the seven of games. And then they would draft and come up with a different team. And then they would repeat. So they did that for five weeks. And so what did that do? That's saved on the travel and expenses. So you weren't mm. flying from New York to Seattle and down to LA. That's a flight plus hotel rooms. They paid the salaries, which were decent. They paid the, the room and board, which was appropriate. And if you hit so many home runs or struck out so many people, there was a formula for getting a pay for performance awards. So that model really intrigued me. Now they're playing Mm. volleyball in Nashville. uh, And then there's going to be a women's pro lacrosse team. Yes. I had Michelle DeJulius on. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I like her a lot. Good people. I'm very, very excited about that. You know, there is some precedent like Wimbledon. You know, they, they have equal pay, but they decided to do that. And, um, you know, so Serena and Novak or whoever, everybody's on the same. Also, I think because there's superstars in certain areas, and I think 
this is just personally, we need to do a better job of developing those stars, uh-huh. getting their profiles out there and elevating them because people will follow. I mean, they got great stories too. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, my little boy, I have a, I have three boys, <laughs> a my nine, a five and a 10 month old. <laughs> and the five-year-old, my wife was showing him college softball and now he can't stop watching it. That's great. And I don't know. The games, to me, I love softball because the game's more dynamic. It happens really fast. The College World Series is fantastic because you can watch so many games. The action's so great. I just think that, you know, having married somebody, and I was also coached women athletes for a very long time, you're like, my goodness, like if only people knew about this person and her story and how great she is, like she should be able to go on and make a living doing this. And there's no reason she can't sell X, Y, and Z brand as well. Yep. I think the Olympics will help this summer with storytelling. I swear to God, it's the best kept secret that we need to just scream from the rooftop that this is good brand. And then I also think on the ESPN side and ABC and just in making sure that we showcase these women, you know, whether it's in Sports Center or Mm -hmm. it's, you know, in a two hour window in in a fabulous window where there's a lot of people home watching. So it's up to us to make sure that we raise the attention and, and the value of, of all of our women's sports. No Which we doubt. saw the past uh, summer with the WNBA being in one spot. Oh, they had a big, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a big bump in uh, viewership in the bubble? Yeah, we had more games on ABC. And, and generally speaking, we had more games, period. I think we had 49 games. The NBA players were, were in the bubble watching. You know, I think the orange hoodie this past summer was fabulous and it crossed over into the NBA side. You know, they would love to see LeBron purchase a WNBA team or maybe maybe something like that where they step up and, and legitimize the fact that this is good. This is good basketball. This is good women's sports in general. This is great softball. We get a lot of viewers on softball. So and you're you're definitely our demo. I love it. It's great. And uh, it's such a, it's a great, it's a fantastic sport. You know, you mentioned the summer Olympics, having coached a number of Olympic champions. Like, do you see though, that it's this four year cycle. It's like, you have this big build up, these great stories, somebody will pop out, you know, and they'll have something that endures for a while. But then it's like, I don't know what it is in America, but people forget about some of these sports where if you travel overseas and you were going to a track event, you may you know, pre-COVID, you could fill 40, 50,000 people in a stadium. And so, you know, just personally, I think when there needs to be like, let's let's capitalize on some of these things that people are so like gymnastics, my goodness, the whole world, you know, we're all Team USA, you know what I'm saying? What are we going to do so that people know that U.S. trials or world championships are coming up or this big event so that people can start watching it again? It just kind of loses momentum. That's another network. So anyways, but I, I personally think that there's there's a lot of momentum we can we can capture. It'd be great if, if the women won the uh, the Olympics, you know, in basketball. Yeah, it'd be seven. Yeah, seven consecutive years for the women. Yeah. So keep perpetuating that and boosting that up. I think we have a solution, though. I okay. agree with you. Every four years, it peaks and then it comes back down. I think with like ESPN Plus, and Hulu and Disney Plus and all these streaming platforms, they need product, they need content. So I think you're going to see more of that. And I think 
you know, I know that with, you know, Hulu, maybe Amazon, others, they're, they're starting to look at telling some of these women's sports stories through filmmaking. It's just wide open. My little boy, five-year-old, you know, we're really careful around TV, but if he wants to watch sports, he can watch whatever he, you know, and he knows how to go to the sports station and that's how he finds stuff. And he'll, he started watching gymnastics and he was like, oh my goodness. And he just wanted to watch gymnastics. And then it's ripe. You know, if you can capture children in a positive way or youth in a certain way, and then you can like, I just love your concept about kind of getting women like my wife back on the diamond a little bit. And so she's in jujitsu now. That's kind of her new thing. That's a, that's a growing sport. Martial arts, mixed martial arts. ESPN has fight pass. But uh, she does jujitsu, which is more just the, the ground game. Good for her. Yeah. A couple questions I ask every guest. Uh, and since you're at ESPN, I, I'm really interested in this one. But what does high performance mean to you? And it doesn't have to be related to athletes. But what does it mean to be a high performer? High performer is someone that can maintain an excellence over a long or duration of time. And once again, is ethical along the way and brings others with them so they can see this high performance. I think in my world, there's more pressure on women to be even more prepared in some cases for it could be a meeting or an interview, you know, where for a woman, this is a stretch assignment for a man. This is the next step. And so um, high performance is just always being prepared, sort of like when I coached basketball, I always said I had a little black bag with me. And the black bag reminded me of being a doctor back in the the prairie days where you would do home visits. And you never knew what you were walking into, into the home. And if you didn't have your black bag packed and prepared, you weren't going to save this person's life. So I always rehearse everything, including for the first game of the season, how to come out on the court for the national anthem. I mean, there was no nothing to to surprise any of my players. Hopefully was my goal. Mm. I love that. You know, somebody that's constantly pushing for excellence, like what are you doing right now to feed yourself and to continue to develop yourself? Do you like to read? Do you listen to podcasts? Like, what do you do to kind of get new ideas and stimulate yourself? Ooh, I read a lot of short form. I wouldn't say I'm a novel reader. I pick up things, put things down. I watch a lot of TV, obviously watch a lot of sports now, especially going into the selection process this weekend. Selection show on Monday night, by the way, All for right. women's basketball. And I use the phone a lot. I call people. And that's some that's another talent and skill that I think is being lost quite often. Um, if we need to deliver a message to a client, you know, we're, we're moving your game to Sunday from Monday. Very simple example. I often have to remind our folks to pick up the phone and make that call. Just don't send it over email mm. or text. It's cold. It's you know, hard, a hard conversation is so much better when you do it on the phone than over technology. Trust me, it's easier. You can hear the disappointment or elation if it's a good call from your client. So I hope I answered your question there. I kind of went 
off to the side there with another skill. No, this is great. I mean, it's it's rare that you get to hear from somebody in your type of position that's done what you've done. And these little nuggets are things that I hope that people, you know, carry with them. Carol, it's been a pleasure having you on today. I really appreciate your time. I know you were very busy. And, you you know, now that I know about the NHL thing, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm so happy she did this. But uh, thank you for coming on The Blueprint today. And I'm looking forward to championing women's sports and to take some of your insights and to have some discussions with my wife. Very good. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed your questions. And I look forward to meeting you down the road. And good luck to you and your thank family. You. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high-performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.